Welcome to Divorce Dialogues. I'm Katherine Miller. Divorce Dialogues brings expert guests to the airways to talk through your divorce questions and fill in the gray areas about separating. From thinking about divorce, to how to behave during divorce, to what to do after, this is Divorce Dialogues. Welcome to Dialogue on Divorce. I'm Katherine Miller, the founder of the Miller Law Group and director for the Center for Understanding and Conflict. I am on a mission to change how people divorce and help them divorce with dignity. And my guest today is Matt Johnson, LPCCADC, who is program director for the Domestic Violence Safe Dialogue Program which is a restorative justice program which takes traditional restorative justice approaches and adapts it to domestic violence situations. Welcome, Matt. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And, you know, I've always been really interested in restorative justice and its approaches and its sort of perspective on Mm -hmm. conflict and on conflict resolution. And obviously, I Mm -hmm. work in the field of divorce. And so I think it would be great for our listeners, first of all, if you would describe what restorative justice is, I think you'll do a much better job than I do. And then let's talk about how it might apply to the divorce situation. Absolutely. Absolutely. So restorative justice is different from retributive justice. So that's going to be the most the easiest way to compare it. So if you think about a harm that has been done or an injustice that has been done, the way the retributive justice system works is it says who did what and what do they deserve and what kind of punishments need to happen for that. And that's very offender focused. That's focused on the person that's done the harm. And the problem with that is that it can leave out the needs of the person's harmed, the the victims, if you will. And so restorative justice has a different focus. It says what kind of injustices have been done and then what needs to happen between the parties to make it right. And then where do we go from this in the future? And so it's a very different focus. It's focused a lot on, on needs. It's focused a lot on um, moving forward. So it's just, it's a very different focus. And, and so it sounds like what you're saying is that it's a more holistic approach, really, that it, it looks at the whole situation, not just a punishment situation that is probably in, in most instances really unsatisfying to the people who are I don't love the word victim for the divorce situation, although I can see that it is definitely applicable to many of these situations, but to the person who is aggrieved. Exactly, exactly. And it's interesting that you say about, you talk about satisfaction because restorative justice is really well known for leaving everybody happy. There was one study that I was reading where the lowest satisfaction rate among the parties was 97% satisfaction, and that was among the offending population. And so there is a focus on, is everybody happy here? And even though it's a more painful process, it's a deeper process, it still allows people to walk away feeling whole and like they have some sort of resolution to their grievance. So, Well, Matt, Matt Johnson, what do you mean it's a it's a more painful process? How how does that work? It's more satisfying and yet it's most more painful. Sounds oxymoronic. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> it's, it's kind of the interesting thing about it. So there's much more focus on what actual harms have been done. So a person needs to go to that uncomfortable place of exploring the harms they may have done, exploring the harm that has done to them. And so you go into the pain. And what we typically see with punishment 
is that there's a focus away from that. If we think about times that we've been punished, we tend to focus on the people doing the punishment rather than the harm that has been done. And so in some ways, it's a deeper process to focus on the actual harms that have been done and how that has affected people. It sounds like Um, what you're talking about is it really requires revisiting it instead of just sort of cordoning it off and just saying, okay, now what's the ramifications of it? And it sounds like in the restorative justice approach, it really requires processing what happened and why. And Exactly. Right. And through that, reaching some kind of resolution or some different place through that experience. Exactly. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. You know, it's really interesting. You know, one of the things I say in the introduction, but I rarely talk about it, that I'm a director for the Center for Understanding and Conflict. And we teach something called the understanding-based model to conflict resolution. And one of the mm-hmm. sort of underpinnings of that model is that really the best results are found by working through conflict. It's uncomfortable to do that. It's much easier to kind of go around it or, or you know, above it, below it, you know, just avoid right. the conflict altogether and see if we can reach a resolution that doesn't actually touch the conflict itself and yet really unsatisfying. Right, exactly. And some of the, you know, as a counselor, I think about avoidance strategies. And one of the avoidance strategies to get away from that conflict is money and what kind of emotional damages have been done to me. And so I'm going to put a, a number on that. And that can, that can leave people really unsatisfied because we all have a different relationship to money. We all have different emotional attachments to money. And so what money means to me emotionally might mean something different to you. And so I never feel like I'm heard if I'm fighting over the, the money that I get. So there's also inclusion of all parties. And so if I involve, if I have someone else speaking for me in a process, there's this helpless feeling, there might be a helpless feeling that comes in, or a feeling of not being included, whereas restorative justice tries to include as many parties, can include a lot of parties, and tries to get direct participation of the participants. So because of those strategies, restorative justice can leave people with that more satisfied feeling, I think. So, Matt Johnson, can you give us an example of how this works? Sure. So I'll give the the example of harm has been done. So there was a, an example of a case where a young mother had killed a bicyclist with her car and it was an accident. And the family looked at the situation and said, you know, she made a, an error. And so we could prosecute her for that and, you know, have her do jail time and sue her. But we don't want to do that. She's a young mother. She's, she's just starting her life. And we don't feel like that's really going to help the situation. And we still mourn for our son who died, and that's really painful, but we want to do things the way that doing something retributive is not going to heal us. And so what they did is they had a celebration of life, and they had the person who had killed their son at that celebration of life. And they talked about this is how it's impacted us. Um, And then the person that has done the harm also talks about what was going on with them. And so that's a hallmark of of restorative justice is both parties can talk about what their experience was like on both sides. And that's really healing. So the interesting thing about that story is that the person relating the story says that she was at a training and she was relating that same story. And then someone in the audience says, oh, that's me. I was the driver. And we still spend our holidays together with the the family. 
So one of the possible results is that people want to stay connected afterwards. So why do you think that is? So there's certain principles that can always be applied. So having everyone talk about what it was like on their end and that sharing of perspective is very healing. Hearing what something is like from the other side of, a, of another person, even the persons that have harmed us or the people that we've harmed or like in the case of divorce, is what it was like on the other side. Giving air to that can be really satisfying and really healing. You know, it's really interesting because one of the things that I think is really important is to recognize when people are dealing with conflict, and obviously I deal a lot with people in conflict around family matters, divorce issues, to recognize Mm -hmm. the sort of inherent dignity of each person, right? regardless of what they've done, right? And regardless of how wounded one or the other or both might feel, that at the same time to recognize dignity, my dignity and your dignity, and see if we can try to find a resolution that really honors that and really doesn't wound it in the words of Donna Hicks, who's done tremendous work on the subject of dignity. And I'm wondering if we could, I know you don't work with divorcing people, or maybe you do, it's a domestic violence situation. It probably does come up now and again. But, you know, thinking about how oftentimes when people are divorcing, how one person, or again, maybe it's both people feel really betrayed by the other Mm -hmm. person and feel like, you know, they may come in feeling like they can't let that other person get away with it, right? Get away right. with hurting me in this way, get away with abandoning us in this way, or, or you know, changing our, their mind in a way that's really hurtful. And, and there's a sort of desire for revenge, but also, right. I think, an acknowledgement that revenge doesn't actually get me anything. Like, if I don't want you, I want you to pay for what you've done to me, that revenge, right. your payment doesn't actually fix my problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, it's interesting that you say that. Uh, So, you know, the topic of revenge, leaving people unsatisfied, you know, we see that in in movies a lot, like that's kind of the the moral of the story. One of the interesting things that I've been able to to see is that when you involve people with restorative justice, that desire for revenge goes away, not because that it necessarily, they see the, the wisdom of, oh, revenge doesn't work, but they feel heard. If someone can share their pain, that is what I think that need for revenge is expressing. So can I give an example of that? Yeah, that'd be great. Okay, so one of my mentors does a lot of work with death penalty cases and or capital cases. And she said that one of her students, actually, his sister was murdered. And he did a restorative process where he was able to express how he felt. He was able to ask what was going on with someone else in the situation and in his case, they, was, they used surrogates. They used people who had done similar crimes, but not that crime. And through that process, he was able to write the person who had murdered his sister and say, I don't want you dead anymore. So that need for revenge in his case went away when his need was seen and met. So I kind of think of revenge as a cry for help in some ways, and that the way that we have in our culture to deal with that does not actually work. So it's a myth that we're that we're told, like revenge is going to make you healed. And it's not true. So, And I think so. actually, actually, at their heart, most people recognize that and but struggle with a way to also acknowledge the hurt that doesn't require, you know, making it okay. Right. Uh, you're listening to Dialogue on Divorce. This is Catherine Miller. We're here every other Wednesday from 5 to 5.30 on WBOX 1460 AM and WBOX.com. And we're also available 
as a podcast, both on my website, which is www.westchesterfamilylaw.com, as well as on iTunes and SoundCloud. And my guest today is Matt Johnston. He's the program director for the Domestic Violence Safe Dialogue Program. And we're talking about restorative justice and divorce. And right now we're talking about revenge and how common the desire for it is and how empty it actually can be, even if it's achieved. And Matt, you know, one thing that I think is really kind of an important thing in our culture is we're constantly sort of encouraged to forgive, right? And I think there's mm-hmm. like forgiveness, that's a big thing, right? Yeah. Like to actually, right. and I think that, you know, so oftentimes when we talk about when someone says, oh, I'm sorry, you know, I was late for dinner. Well, it's okay is the response, right? Mm-hmm. And it may not mm-hmm. be okay. I mean, obviously I'm using a very trivial example, but it may mm-hmm. not be okay. And And how can we kind of process? And I think that restorative justice, it sounds like what you're talking about, and I'd be interested in your comments, that the restorative justice approach is a way to process without saying it's okay, and maybe to reach a place of acceptance or even forgiveness through understanding in some way. Is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So it's okay sounds like it's more sweeping under the rug, like I don't want the avoidance of conflict, whereas restorative justice is, no, we're we're going to give air to the damage that has been done. We're going to hear about people's genuine feelings of remorse, and then see what comes out of that. So it, it is a diving into it instead of a sweeping it aside. So yes, that's very true. So, And Matt, how would you imagine that the restorative justice approach could help people who are divorcing? There are some principles. I think just the application of the principles could be more helpful with maybe with divorce cases. So there are some who disagree in the field, but that's okay. But just acknowledging that a dispute exists, I think that would be helpful. And then to share from both perspectives how the other person experienced the dispute. And so one of the things that I'm kind of hearing is that when you're talking about divorce is that sometimes people villainize the other person. And when we don't hear the other person's perspective, they can seem really big in our heads. And so a chance to hear this is what was going on with the other person can reduce the space that that person has in your head. So I think having a chance to talk about that in a safe environment could be really helpful emotionally so that you can move more quickly to a resolution. So what would that look like, Matt? So first, it sounds like this first step would be to acknowledge that we see this differently, right? That we think we got to this place, whatever it is, you know, and that we have a dispute as to whether or not your actions were right or wrong, that kind of thing. And imagine, you know, an extramarital relationship or something like that where there is a sort of incident that is mm-hmm. sort of the target as opposed to, you know, 10 years of increasing unhappiness, which is a little harder to define. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. each person would have a chance to say how they got to the place of where they're feeling what they're feeling. Is that what you're suggesting? Yeah. Having a chance to say, here's my experience of the situation and just to share that in a in a way that's uh, non-blaming and and focused on their side of the fence. And so that, I think, could make it more easy for the other person to hear. And I assume you have guided many of these conversations in your role. Yeah. And so, you know, it's it's hard for people to stay on their side of the fence sometimes, I've noticed. Do you find Absolutely. that's true? Absolutely. So for pre-conference preparation is really essential and finding a way to talk about it. And some people are never going to be to the place where they can look at their side of the fence and take responsibility for that. 
And so if someone is not in that place, then restorative justice could be dissatisfying because like, oh, I, I didn't really get what I needed to get here from this other person. But if you prep the people accordingly, then I think it can be really helpful. So, and in some cases, like with my program, we, the use of, we use surrogate people that have done similar crimes or similar things, but have not done the, not directly involved in the person to whom they're speaking. That can be really helpful emotionally to hear from another person that's done similar things. And so for one's own emotional well-being, having that conversation can be really helpful. So. This is Dialogue on Divorce. I'm Katherine Miller. I'm talking today with Matt Johnson, the Program Director for the Domestic Violence Safe Dialogue Program. And Matt, if people are interested in domestic violence and restorative justice or just restorative justice in general, how can they contact you if they have questions? Sure. So you can check out our website at dvsdprogram.com, and that stands for Domestic Violence Safe Dialogue Program. And you can see some of the ways that we're using restorative justice to help give voice to survivors and also integrate people that have harmed back into the community. So, And tell us a little bit about your program, Matt. How does it work with domestic violence situations? Sure. So we have a couple branches of our program. One is the Safe Dialogue program where we talk to survivors that may have questions left over from their abusive relationships such as, why did this happen to me? Is there anything else I could have done? Did he really love me? And then we pair them with someone who's gone through and been accountable for their abuse. They answer the questions as best they can. And then we have them together for a one-time conversation. And the survivor is able to ask any questions that that person wants. So that's one way we apply it. And uh, we also do survivor impact panels where we have three survivors talk to a group of vendors who are halfway through their treatment in order to help them increase their accountability and empathy. And it also helps the survivors to reclaim their voice. So several modifications to restorative justice. And because in a more traditional restorative justice approach, then the actual people would be there instead of a surrogate. Is that right? That is correct. But that doesn't work for domestic violence, we found. Right. I can understand why that might be. But in a divorce setting where you don't have domestic violence and where people are really wondering about what really happened here. And you know what? In my experience, there's almost always a kind of question as to as to what happened here, even when it has taken a long time to sort of devolve, you know, that there's what the other person's experience is and why, you know, a lot of those questions, did he ever really love me? Did I ever really mm-hmm. love her, him? You know, what went wrong between walking down the aisle and saying, I do to today is, you know, often kind of a mystery. And other people tend to, in my experience, kind of blame the other person and say, well, you never really did this. You never Mm -hmm. really appreciated me. And both people feel that way. And oftentimes it's the same accusation. And so I'm thinking, and I'm wondering if you have any comment about whether or not you think restorative, restorative justice principles could help and how with those kinds of conversations. Yeah, absolutely. I'm what do they call a maximalist as far as restorative justice. I think you can take certain principles and apply them. And so what you're describing, too, is that sense of bafflement, too. And I, what I'm picturing as you're talking is that I'm picturing two people working collaboratively to try to figure out what happened, what the heck happened. And with our surrogate dialogue program, 
I get that's a beautiful thing to watch where two people are working together to try to figure out what happened and try to reduce that sense of bafflement together. And I'm wondering, could it be applied to divorce where two people are working together to try to figure out what happened? So I guess that depends on the person, but it'd be interesting to try. Well, why, how is it that people are fine the program? What makes them interested in doing this? Because I would think their motivation would be a really big driver. Sure. So it depends on the person. For some people, it's the reducing that sense of intimidation is a motivator. One woman was six months out of an abusive relationship, and she said, I just needed to sit across from an offender and not be intimidated. And for her, that was her motivation. For other people, it's those questions of why, why did this happen? And that sense of self-doubt, that sense of shame, that faith, even though they're away from the person that originally caused that to happen. And so this is just a way to accelerate the growth that they're already going through. And so that's a lot of the reasons people get interested in it. And if our listeners are are thinking, well, does it mean that I forgive the other person because I'm willing to sit in the room and, and understand that he or she has a different perspective that's valid to them? Is that a problem? I mean, like, how do people deal with that situation? Sure. So in my experience, just with the surrogate program, the only forgiveness that I usually see is the self-forgiveness, where the survivor says, you know, I feel guilty for taking my kids away from their father. And now after talking to this other person, I realize I was beating myself up wrongly. And so there's that self-forgiveness. And then usually hearing what it, someone has had the experience of being married to someone who's an offender and then talking with someone who has done the work and become accountable and, and is continuing to work to be accountable, there's opposite of anger. That's actually a strong feeling of anger or a strong feeling of detachment. So, oh, this is what they could have done and they chose not to. And then there's that big emotional intensity around that. So, Well, you know, as you're talking, I'm thinking sort of back to the beginning of the show mm-hmm. that it's really focused on, I mean, the reason to come into the room is so that I feel better, not so you do. Yeah, that's exactly it. Right. That's exactly it. And oftentimes people feel very sort of like really traumatized by the end of a marriage, whatever happened. And, mm-hmm. and it can take some, you know, people say, oh, I can't imagine, you know, ever dating again. Or, you know, like, you know, and I say, well, what, you know, what happens if you remarry? Well, that's just not going to happen, you know, because they just yeah. feel like, you know, that sense of trauma and sort of, I don't know, that they don't want to open themselves up to that possibility. And of course, as human beings, I think most of us are really wired for, for connection. And so right. the idea of this having this uh, positive focus on myself is a reason to get into the room. Exactly, exactly. So, uh, Matt Johnson, do you have any closing comments for us before we end the show? Um, uh, no, that was that was great. Thanks. This has been a great conversation. And um, I would love to, if anybody wants to contact me, you can check out the website at dvsdprogram.com. Thank you for listening to Dialogue on Divorce. It's been great to have you as a guest, Matt. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Catherine. Thanks for having me.